Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, I did decide I'm going to break this uh, into two more episodes for this, for the Tao Te Ching, because there's kind of a lot to go through, and I didn't want to rush through it and, you know, cram it all together. So I wanted to make it a little more, give it a little more of the justice that it deserves. Um, book two is the part of the uh, Tao Te Ching that deals mostly with virtue. And so it's going to have some overlap with the first part of the book, but it's also going to be a little more into the specifics. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with chapter 38. Those of highest virtue do not strive for virtue, and so they have it. Those of lowest virtue never stray from virtue, and so they lack it. Um, those of highest virtue practice non-action and never act for ulterior motives. Those of lowest virtue act and always have some ulterior motives. So when you, you know, are of the highest virtue, um, you don't try to broadcast it. You don't try to, you know, make sure that everybody knows it. This is one of the things that um, you kind of get what you pay for. If you strive to have everybody see that you are something, odds are you're not really that. So the people who are of the highest virtue don't have to make a show of it. They just are. They embrace the highest virtues. Um, those of the lowest virtues, those of people who really don't live what they say. They really don't live the virtuous way. They are the ones that have to have constant validation. Uh, those of highest benevolence act, but without ulterior motives. Those of highest righteousness act, but with ulterior motives. Uh, those who are ritually correct act, but if others do not respond, they roll up their sleeves and resort to force. So in this section, what they're talking about is this is sort of the decline uh, from the way. You know, the highest way of being is following the way. But as we've become more complicated and separated ourselves somewhat, you know, virtue becomes the next highest. Um, and virtue is probably about as close to the way as most humans can get. Um, benevolence is one step below that. That's where you, you know, are generous with people. Um, but you don't necessarily have a good connection with the way. It's a little bit lower of a form of, of being and of governing. Um, those with the highest righteousness act, um, but without ulterior motives. You know, the righteous, the ones with the highest righteousness, you can think of the ones who want to control every aspect of life. You know, they are, you know, outwardly proclaiming themselves that we're the virtuous, we're the holy, we're the, you know, we're the ones you should follow. Um, and then those who are ritually correct, um, act, but when others do not respond, they resort to force. In other words, when society comes to a point where it's set up on custom and ritual, um, deviating from those can will lead to physical consequences, being imprisoned, being killed, being exiled, whatever those consequences may be. So when you have a society that is devolved to that, that is kind of one of the lowest uh, forms of society. When the way was lost, there was virtue. When virtue was lost, there was benevolence. When benevolence was lost, there was righteousness. When righteousness was lost, there were the rights. Um, and, you know, so again, gives you very specifically the order from highest to lowest. 
the rites were, are the wearing thin of loyalty and trust, the beginning of chaos. In other words, when you're following the rules just to follow the rules, you're only doing it to avoid punishment or to possibly get some reward. Uh, there is no connection to this. And if you can get away with not following the rights, if it will benefit you, then you will break the rules, you will break the rights, and do whatever it is you want to do. And that's why it says it's the beginning of chaos. When you start getting to this point, people no longer have ownership, in, feel ownership and connected to the society, to what's going on. Um, they're only connected if they, you know, to try to avoid punishment and get rewards. And if they can get around it, they will. The ability to predict what is to come is an embellishment of the way and the beginning of ignorance. Um, I, I, one of the ways you can think about this is like hubris. When you start to think that you can predict everything that's to come, that you know everything, um, you're not really following the way. Um, and you're also setting yourself up for folly. You're setting yourself up for a fall. You know, when you think that you can predict the way everything is going to happen, this is when reality makes a fool of you. And this is often what happens with, um, you know, ruling classes in a society is they'll get to a point where they think, oh, we know how the people are going to act. We know how the conditions are going to be. And so, you know, we're in charge of it all. And what happens is unknown things come into play uh, and they completely lose power. Uh, you know, they have the idea that they know everything, but they actually don't. Uh, this is why the most accomplished resides in what is thick, not in what is thin. They reside in what is most substantial, not in mere embellishment. Um, this means, you know, you want to be of substance. You don't want to be about superficiality. You know, if you're about superficiality, then there's not much below the surface and there's not going to be much stability. You know, stability comes from substance. Think about it, uh, maybe use a metaphor of building on something. You know, what's going to be a more solid building? A building you build on top of, you know, stone foundation or one you built on the sand? You know, the one on the sand might look pretty, but it's eventually uh, much quicker going to tumble to nothingness. Chapter 39. In the past, among those who attained the one were these. Heaven attained the one and became pure. Earth attained the one and became settled. The spirits attained the one and became numin uh, numinous. The valley attained the one and became full. The myriad creatures attained the one and flourished. Barons and kings attained the one and became the mainstays of the state. Um, so, you know, when uh, the different things attained the one, that's how they came into the powers and how they came into the being that they had, whether it was the universe itself, whether it was the creatures, whether it was, you know, the kings and rulers. All of this came about through the one. If heaven lacked what made it pure, it might rip apart. If earth lacked what made it settled, it might open up. If the spirits lacked what made them numinous, they might uh, cease their activity. So basically, they started out this way, and if they stray from the path, then they will eventually crumble into decay. Um, 
If the barons and kings lacked what made them honored and lofty, they might fall. And so what is honored has its root in what is base. Uh, what is lofty has its foundation in what is lowly. You know, this is very much seeing everything as connected. You can't really raise something that is solid and lasting unless you first go down into that base and build that solid base. This is why barons and kings refer to themselves as the orphan, the desolate, the forlorn. Uh, this is not a case where what is base serves as the foundation. Is, it, is this not a case where what is base serves as a foundation, is it not? And so the greatest praise is without praise. Uh, do not desire what jingles like jade, but what rumbles like rock. So again, another warning about superficiality. Don't let yourself fall into that. Um, the, the rulers that are the strongest and the best rulers uh, have a sense of humility. They don't have this attitude that they're always right, they know everything, they're perfect. Um, because those rulers that have that are basically like jade. They're very pretty, they're very shiny, but they're not very solid. They're not a very good foundation. Whereas the more humble are a, a more firm foundation. I'm going to go to chapter 41. When the best scholars hear about the way they assiduously put it into practice. When average scholars hear about the way, they sometimes uphold it and sometimes forsake it. When the worst scholars hear about the way, they laugh at it. So, you know, there's a division of scholars. The scholars who are actually good are going to find the way and they're going to live by it. Um, they're going to make it the foundation of everything they do, everything they believe. Um, the uh, middle-of-the-road scholars um, sometimes uphold it and sometimes forsake it. And it usually depends on what um, serves their interest at the time. So instead of looking at the bigger picture, they might uphold the way if it follows what they want and let it slide if it doesn't seem to give them what they want. Uh, whereas the worst of scholars, they basically laugh at it, don't understand it, and think it's all foolishness. Uh, chapter 52. Uh, the way produces the one. The one produces the two. Two produces three. Three produces the myriad creatures. The myriad creatures shoulder yin and embrace yang. And by blending these vital energies, they attain harmony. Um, this is kind of an, not so much an origin story, but uh, an idea of where everything came from. It starts from the way and it starts to multiply out from there. People most, most despise being orphaned, desolate, or forlorn. And yet barons and kings take these as their personal appellations. And so sometimes diminishing a thing adds to it, sometimes adding to a thing diminishes it. So in other words, the good barons and kings sort of debase themselves a little bit. They don't view themselves as highly um, because they keep themselves grounded in the foundation. And in keeping, them ground, keeping themselves grounded in the foundation, you make better decisions. You can rule and lead better. Uh, chapter 42, 43, I'm sorry. The most supple things in the world ride roughshod over the most rigid. Uh, that which is not there can enter even where there is no space. This is how I know the advantages of non-action. 
the teaching that is without words, the advantages of non-action. Few in the world can attain these. Um, so this is dealing with uh, flexibility. Um, think about the, the, the first line, the most supple things ride roughshod over the most rigid. What's the most supple things you can think of? The wind and water. These things flow around uh, the solid things. They, they can go right over them. So you can build the you know, strongest wall, the you know, hardest rock, but the wind and the water will still just flow around them um, because they don't have um, rigidity that is um, not able to change with the world when needed. Um, teaching that is without words. Uh, this is how I know the advantages of non-action. The teaching that is without words. Um, in other words, kind of putting an opposite of what I'm doing here, but the, the real teaching is just by doing. And then people see by example what you're doing and follow that example. You know, if you're teaching with words, you're not teaching as well. Now, this is a podcast, so I can't really show you what I'm doing. I have to teach with words, so we have to settle for the next best thing, according to this philosophy. Um, the, there's also the idea in this of being, not doing, uh, in trying to be something, you know, be virtuous, be, uh, you know, be flexible to the way the world is. Um and being is something that gets taken up a lot when you get into the 20th century and the existentialists, beginning of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century with the existentialists, um, you know, and their whole idea is what is existence, what is being, and they, you know, have a lot of different paths on that. Uh, Sartre in particular um, sees human being as problematic. Um, because you can't be something as a human the way an object can be something. Um, you know, you can't be a writer the way that a desk is a desk. Um, the, the desk being the desk is all it is. So in, in this way, you can kind of see similarities with the ideas of the way. that You know, before humans, before the complexity that was involved, things just were. And as humans became more clever, they needed virtue and these other things um, because they could no longer just be. And this is an alienation from the universe. This is an alienation from, you know, everything around you, an alienation from the way. So these ideas that come up in here are ideas that, you know, aren't just in this book and nowhere else. As, as with most philosophies, you know, they pop up in different cultures and different time periods in altered forms, but a lot of these ideas keep coming back. Uh, chapter 44, uh, your name or your body, which do you hold more dear? Your body or your property, which is of greater value? Gain or loss, which is the greater calamity? Um, you know, what? what is your hierarchy of what you see as important? Um, your name is obviously more important because it lasts forever. It's passed down to your ancestors. You know, it's passed down to future generations. So having a good name is more important than your body. Your body is much more temporary. And even more temporary than your body is your property. 
You know, the things you own don't last forever. They don't even often last as long as your body. Um, gain or loss, which is the greater calamity? Uh, and both of them are a calamity because remember this, this system plays on the idea that if the more you have, the more you gain, the more you have to lose. And so you have this uh, apprehension about loss when you gain something. Um, excessive hoarding results in great loss. The more you have, the more you're going to lose because eventually you lose your life. Everything goes back or it gets stolen. You know, the more you have to steal, the more thieves are going to be looking at what you have. So excessive hoarding results in great loss, but it also results in great loss because the more you have, the less you can appreciate. If you own 12 boats, you, you can't ride in 12 boats at once. You, you know, you, and having so many of the same thing, they lose being special. If you have one boat, that is your boat. And it, you know, it, it's more valuable to you. So the excessive hoarding of things actually makes them worthless and it makes you less stable in what you have. No contentment and avoid disgrace. In other words, don't try to overshoot what you are. Be content with what you have. And, you know, being content with what you have means not only your, you know, physical possessions, but your renown. You know, don't go around uh, trying to get everybody to know you and to love you, because the more you try that, the more you're going to fall into disgrace, the more you're going to be seen as foolish. But if you're content in who you are and what you have, you're going to be happier and you're going to end up being more, you know, having more. You'll appreciate more and you'll what you do have and you'll be appreciated more. <clears throat> know when to stop and avoid danger and you will long endure. You know, one of the things that often happens, especially when people become successful, and this goes back to the idea of hubris, when you become successful, you start to think nothing can touch me, nothing can hurt me. You know, and how many people do we see that become, you know, very wealthy from coming from nothing or very famous coming from nothing who end up self-destructing, you know, because they don't know when to stop. They get it in their head that I can do anything. And so they kind of override common sense and they do things that are dangerous and bring about their downfall. Uh, chapter 46. When the world has the way, fleet-footed horses are used to haul dung. When the world is without the way, war horses are raised in the suburbs. The greatest misfortune is not to know contentment. The worst calamity is the desire to acquire. And so those who know who know the commitment of contentment, I'm sorry. And so those who know the contentment of contentment are always content. In other words, you know, the capitalism has the idea that, you know, wanting more is what keeps the economy going. This is sort of the opposite idea of that. Um, it might keep the economy going, but it leads to war. Uh, there was an idea that, you know, capitalism, if all countries became capitalists and, you know, had, you know, more or less democratic Republican representation, that war would go away. Well, it never happened. Wars still go on. Um, and this is because when you don't know contentment, you always want more. You have unlimited wants that get opened up when you're not content. And eventually the 
the country you're in or where, you know, if you're a nation, can't fulfill that unlimited desire. And so you have to start going to war with neighbors and taking what they have. So moderation is very important. Um, chapter 47. Without going out the door, one can know the whole world. Without looking out the window, one can see the way of heaven. The further one goes, the less one knows. This is why sages know without going abroad. Name without having to see, perfect through non-action. Um, one of the, the, I guess, the connections I could tie this to a Western philosopher would be to, you know, sort of the idea of Socrates and the ideas of Descartes, that the proper starting place is to know yourself. If you want to be wise, then you have to really start with the thing you know the best and see which of those things are solid foundation and which of those things are not on solid foundation. So the, you know, the sage doesn't run around the world looking for wisdom. Um, the sage is someone who sort of retreats and, and, you know, starts with the place they know the best and then is able to see the whole world uh, from that place. Uh, in the chapter 48, in the pursuit of learning, one does more each day. In the pursuit of the way, one does less each day. Uh, one does less and less until one does nothing. One does nothing, and yet nothing is left undone. Gaining the world is accomplished by following no activity. As soon as one actively tries, one will fall short of gaining the world. So again, this grasping is constantly taking you away from what's actually important um, and taking you farther from the way. Um, if you're actively grasping and actively trying to get, whether it's knowledge or things, um, you're more hung up on the activity than you are actually, you know, obtaining what there is to obtain. Uh, for that, you need stillness. You know, this is one of those things where it's hard to be a philosopher in a crowded, you know, room where you're laughing and joking and talking and there's lots of activity going on. For activities like philosophy, like writing, like art, you often have to go off by yourself and, and have time with your own thoughts, your own mind, um, and it's here that you can find the creativity. Not that you have to shun people altogether, but you do need that pulling away. Okay. Um, chapter 49. Sages do not have constant hearts of their own. They take people's hearts as their hearts. I am good to those who are good. I am also good to those who are not good. Uh, this is to be good out of virtue. I trust the trustworthy. I also tr trust the untrustworthy. This is to trust out of virtue. Sages blend into the world according to with the people's hearts. The people all pay attention with their eyes and ears. Uh, the sages regard them as children. This could be misinterpreted to think that the sage is a fool and that they believe people who shouldn't be believed um, and that they you know, are good to people who are not good to them. But it's one of those things where you are leading by example. So when, you know, you're trusting people and you're seeing them as good, even if they're not, or, you know, they're not trustworthy, you're basically putting it in their head that they like you and they want to make you happy. And to make you happy, they need to stop being bad, stop being untrustworthy. Um, and this is how the sage kind of uh, molds them. He treats everyone as, treats the people as children. 
You know, children learn better by example. What they see their parents doing, what they see their teachers doing, these are the things they're often going to emulate. If they see their parents or teachers doing bad things, they're going to do bad things. If they see their parents or teachers doing good things and being trustworthy, they're going to tend to model themselves after that. Now, you know, we know in, you know, modern psychology, we know that sometimes there are just a small number of people who will never be that way. They'll be untrustworthy no matter what. They'll be bad no matter what, because there's something you know, wrong uh, with their with their psychological makeup. Um, but that is a very small number of people. Most people will become what they see modeled. So if what they see modeled is truthfulness and goodness, they will become good and truthful. Uh, chapter 51. The way produces them. Virtue rears them. Things shape them. Circumstances perfect them. This is why the myriad creatures all revere the way and honor virtue. The way is revered and virtue honored not because this is decreed, but because it is natural. So in other words, there isn't some outside lawgiver that makes this the case. It's the case because that's the ordering and the functioning of, of the universe, because of the way. Um, and so the way produces them and virtue rears them, raises and nurtures them, settles and confirms them, nourishes and shelters them, to produce without possessing, to act with no expectation of rewards, to lead without lording over, such as ignomatic virtue. So, you know, by living closer to nature, you live a better life. Um, you don't have to own things with a piece of paper, a title, a deed. Um, you walk out into the nature and everything you see, you own just by seeing it. Um, you know, the animals don't buy the food they eat. They either kill it or graze or do, you know, get their food that way. Uh, it's there without the exchange of money. And this again is sort of a, you know, a little bit of a pointing at how these things that we sometimes see as you know, the advancements of humans have actually become things that have moved us into a much more unnatural way of living. Um, chapter 52. The world had a beginning. This can be considered the mother of the world. Knowing the mother return uh, and know her children. Knowing her children return and preserve her mother. And one will avoid danger to the end of one's days. Stop up the openings, close the gates. To the ends of one's life, one will remain unperturbed. Unstop the openings, multiply your activities, and to the end of one's life, you will be beyond salvation. To discern the minute is called enlightenment. To preserve the weak is called strength. Use this light and return home to this enlightenment. Do not bring disaster upon yourself. This is called practicing the constant. So let's go back and talk about that a little bit. Um, again, this is, you know observation, looking at the way things are, reverencing the way things are. And this is something that very much, you know, speaks to modern life. How much do we, you know, look at and appreciate nature and how much do we attempt to lord over it? And what has been the result of our lording over nature? Well, the result has been climate change and pollution and, you know, all of these other things where we thought that we could control all of this 
Um, actually, what's happening is we're destroying it and making it uninhabitable for ourselves. You know, strength and enlightenment come from living in harmony, not from lording over things. The more we try to change the environment to suit us, the more we mess up things and it becomes less suitable. Chapter 53. Uh, if I know anything at all, I know that, follow, that in following the great way, there is but one concern. The great way is smooth and easy, yet people love to take shortcuts. You know, this is the thing, people, especially in modern life, um, if it doesn't matter if it's not that hard to get there, if it takes too long, if it's too meandering, we want the shortcut. We want it now. Um, you know, we, I, I've often said that, it, you know, the, the 21st century, 20th and 21st century were the, you know, the, the, the pill centuries. You know, we want a pill that makes everything all right. We don't want to change our behaviors. We don't want to think about things. We don't want to work through things. We just want to take a pill or, you know, whatever it is and have everything be okay without having to change anything about what we're doing. We want that instant gratification. And, you know, that's even back then you can see people love shortcuts. Uh, the court is resplendent, yet the fields are overgrown. The granaries are empty, yet some wear elegant clothes. Fine swords dangled at their sides. They are stuffed with food and drink, and they possess wealth in gross abundance. This is what's known as taking pride in robbery. Uh, this is far from the, uh, this is from the way. I'm sorry. Far is this from the way. I apologize today for that. Um, this is something you see over and over again with societies that become too top-heavy with the wealth. You know, when all of the wealth and all of the, um, you know, food and all of the luxuries are concentrated in one small group of people, what ends up happening is they stop paying attention to what's happening to the common people. And the common people start to do without. The common people start to starve. And eventually, this is a ground for, you know, catastrophe. The, the ultra-wealthy are living by robbing everyone else. You know, we saw it in France prior to the French Revolution, and we see it in a lot of capitalist countries, you know, in the present. You also saw this in the communist countries, in the Soviet Union, in China, in North Korea, where all of the benefits of the state were going to the ruling party, to the ruling class. And everyone else barely had enough to eat if they had enough to eat. And so whenever you have this, that system will not uh, be sustainable for long because eventually, you know, you're going against the way of nature and eventually the more people are starving, the less they have to lose and the more likely they're going to be to just overthrow you and take what they need. Okay. Chapter 54. What is firmly grounded will not be pulled out. What is firmly embraced will not be lost. Though the sacrifices of through the sacrifices of one descendants, it will never cease. Cultivate in oneself, and its virtue will will be genuine. Cultivate in one's family, and its virtue will be more than enough. Cultivate in one's village, and its virtue will be long lasting. Cultivate in one's state, and its virtue will be virtue will be abundant. Um, so, you know, again, this is. You know, not the idea of just me. This is the idea of, you know, the more I build these strong foundations with family, with friends, with my village, with my state, um, the more long-lasting the benefits will be. 
Um, this is kind of contrary to the idea of it's all about the individual. Um, you know, one of the problems with the idea is it's all about the individual is if everybody's out for themselves, there's no, there's no cooperation hardly. There's nothing long-lasting being built. It's a, it's a war of everybody grab as much as you can. And this is not how you build a solid civilization, a solid village, a solid family. You know, there has to be this working on the foundations so that the whole thing becomes lasting. Okay, chapter 55. Uh, those who are steeped in virtue are like newborn children. Poisonous creatures will not strike them. Fierce beasts will not seize them. Birds of prey will not snatch them away. Their bones are weak and sinews yielding, and yet their grip is firm. They do not yet know the union of male and female, but their potency is at its height. This is because they are perfectly pure. They can wail all day without growing hoarse. This is because they are perfectly balanced. Knowing balance is called constancy. Knowing constancy is called enlightenment. Uh, what helps life along is called inauspicious. Okay. Um, this again is kind of longing for that golden age when everything was simpler and more in line with nature and, you know, not corrupted by modern life. And this is a, this is a, a trait that is in pretty much every culture that's ever existed. They always have this belief that at some time things were simpler in the past and we were happier and things were, you know, better off. It's sometimes called the golden age fallacy. It's sometimes, you know, talked about as the state of nature, this time where, you know, innocence was uh, preferable. And a lot of times this look back is, is caused because life is becoming so complex and people feel so overwhelmed that they want to retreat and they want to move back to a, a simpler time, a simpler way of being. Um, and so they, uh, you know, feel that if we just go back to the good old days, then things will be all right again. And unfortunately, human civilization doesn't go back and the good old days were never as good because every civilization was looking back to the good old days. Um, those who know do not talk about it. Those who talk about it do not know. I think this is a good motto to put and keep in mind when you're out somewhere and you hear the person who's being the loudest and spouting the most nonsense. It's usually the person who knows the least who is talking the most. And lots of cultures and civilizations have placed value on not speaking too much, um, partially because you know, there is a sense that the more you speak, the more you uh, water down knowledge. Um, but there's also the real sense that the more people know the knowledge, the less power can be concentrated in one place. And most societies have viewed, you know, democracy or republics as things that are very unstable. They're very much full of turmoil. They're full of disharmony because everybody has their ideas about the way things should be. You know, the, uh, the, most of the philosophers, most of the monks in the Christian tradition, the Druids in the Celtic tradition, you know, they believed in acquiring knowledge, but only sharing it among the few and not spreading it to the masses. 
And even if you look at the foundation of the United States, it was not originally set up for everybody to vote. It was set up for a very small number of people to vote, um, but to give the impression that, you know, this was a government that represented everyone. But in reality, the way it was actually written was it was set up to represent a small number of the wealthy. Uh, let's see. Stop up the openings, close up the gate, blunt the sharpness, untangle the tangles, soften the glare, merge with the dust. This is known as enigmatic unity. And so one can neither be too familiar nor too distant from there, from them. One can neither benefit nor harm them. One can neither honor nor demean them. And so they are honored by the whole world. In other words, if you put out things that are very complicated, that are very gaudy, that are very, you know, you're, you're not going to have honor from the rest of the world. You're going to have envy, if anything. Um, and some of the people that can see through it will realize there's nothing there. You're just a shallow, superficial, you know, uh, person who tangles a bunch of intrigues. Chapter 57. Uh, follow what is correct and regular in ordering your state. Follow what is strange and perverse in deploying your troops. Follow no activity and gain the world. Uh, how do I know that things are this way? So if you are running your own state, you want everything to be orderly. You don't want chaos. You don't want, you know, infighting. You don't want any of these things when it's your own state. Um, follow what is strange and perverse and in de deploying your troops. In other words, when you send your troops into another country, what they're supposed to do is destroy that harmony, destroy that regularity so that things in the other state fall apart. But, you know, in earlier passages, he talked about the fact that you know, when you do this, you are setting yourself up for disaster somewhere down the road. You know, if you live by the sword, you're not going to die a natural death. At some point, somebody will do the same thing to you. Um, uh, the more taboos and prohibitions there are in the world, the poorer the people. Um, you can definitely see this is true because... In order to control people, you can't be there every moment if you're the ruler, if you're the ruling class. So you have to put it into their heads that there are taboos, there are bad luck, you know, uh, omens that if they don't follow all of these rules, they're going to come to disaster. So you get them to self-regulate. Um, and this is what you do when you have people who are poor and you want to keep them poor. So again, this is not something he's proclaiming as a good thing. He's saying, this is what you have. You know, when you have all of these prohibitions and taboos, uh, if you look at the population, you realize they had to do that because they have a very poor population. The more sharp implements the people have, the more benighted the state. The more clever and skillful the people, the more strange and perverse things arise. So again, you know, this is anti-democratic. This is the idea of you should have a virtuous ruler and people who are simple and follow. Um, if you have a complicated society, you're going to run into trouble. Now, the problem is technology keeps moving. And so the more technology you have, the more complicated society is going to become. So it's not necessarily something you can back away from. 
Um, this could be seen as something that is in an ideal state, but even the author writing this wasn't living in that ideal state. Um, the more clear laws and edicts, the more thieves and robbers. And so sages say, I do nothing and the people transform themselves. I prefer stillness and the people correct and regulate themselves. I engage in no activity and the people prosper on their own. I am without desires and the people simplify their own lives. So again, leading by example. Um, if you are not leading by example, then you have to make laws that govern every aspect of people's lives. You know, if you can't get them to buy into the taboos, well, then you have to make laws. Uh, how tall your fence can be, what color your house can be painted, how many, you know, uh, inches tall can your grass be, all of these things to closely regulate every moment of people's lives. Um, one of the things that, you know, was supposed to happen with the Industrial Revolution was that as machines took our, you know, uh, our heavy work away from us, we were supposed to have more and more leisure time. Well, what ended up happening was the opposite as we, you know, had more efficient machines to do the work and more efficient technologies. Um, we started having to work harder and faster. Um, and this is because, you know, from the point of view of the ruling class, you don't want people with time to think about how bad things are. You want them jumping through as many hoops as they can every day. Um, and it keeps them busy, so it keeps them out of trouble. Um, that's the non-ideal ruler, the non-ideal state. The ideal state is much more simple. Okay, the more dull and depressed the government, the more honest and agreeable the people. In other words, the more subdued, the more the government doesn't have to constantly, you know, shake its fists at the people um, because it just does its thing like clockwork. People come to rely on it. You know, they don't like surprises. They don't like um, instability, uncertainty. And so a dull and depressed government, you, you're, you know what to expect every day. Uh, humans don't do well with uncertainty. Um, very few people can handle it very well. Creative people are probably the only ones who like to embrace any decent amount of uncertainty. For most people, most people would rather feel certainty and stability and know what is going to happen every day. Uh, let's see, chapter 58. Uh, good fortune rests upon disaster. Disaster lies hidden within good fortune. Um, one of the things that this is kind of pointing at is the fact that when someone has good fortune, it's often because somebody else has a disaster. You know, you suddenly inherit a lot of land, that's because somebody died. Or you suddenly get a lot of land, that's because you're, you know, you went to war and they lost, somebody else lost their land. Um, you know, great fortune you, uh, usually comes because somebody else suffered a disaster. Uh, your company prospers because your rival company went bankrupt. Uh, disaster lies hidden within good fortune. So it's an unstable position to be in. You have good fortune, you can lose it at any moment. It's not like you're there forever. And, and I've, I think I've mentioned this in earlier podcasts about, you know, the, the push of capitalism is to always have more. 
And even if you're the wealthiest person in the world, you can't stop and enjoy what you have because somebody will pass you and then you're no longer the wealthiest person in the world. And by the time you get to that point, wealth is just about prestige because you even be in the second, second or third or fifth or 20th wealthiest person in the world or 50th, you're still going to be able to have everything you ever wanted. So now what you're fighting for is that prestige of being number one. And if you're number two, three, and so forth down the line, you're constantly fighting for having to get to that number one. So whenever you have good fortune, there's always that disaster in the background pushing you on and never allowing you to enjoy it. Uh, okay, chapter 59. In bringing order uh, to the people or in serving heaven, nothing uh, is as good as frugality. Uh, to be frugal is called submitting early on. Submitting early on is known as deeply accumulating virtue. Um, you know, if you start out with simple needs, if you start out with simple wants, um, you're setting a good pattern early on. You know, you're, you're setting it up for uh, stability. You're setting it up for long-term success. If you start at a pattern early on of, you know, you know, spending money all over and um, not saving anything, you're setting up bad habits for later on. Um, if you deeply, deeply accumulate virtue, nothing can stand in your way. If nothing can stand in your way, no one, no one will know your limits. If no one knows your limits, you can possess the state. So in other words, when you actually do accumulate virtue, uh, you almost become unknowable to other people. And so they will often hesitate to oppose you, and they, they will tend to be more likely to follow you um, because you're self-possessed. You're not running and grabbing and being showy and, you know, doing all of these things. Um, there's, there's nothing quite as terrifying for some people as confidence in someone else. Uh, let's see. If you possess the mother of the state, you can long endure. This is known as deep roots and strong stems. This is the way of long life and far-reaching vision. So in other words, you know, anytime you want something to last, you really have to delve into virtue, delve into the way, and build a really solid foundation that's going to last. Because without that solid foundation, if everything is ephemeral, if everything is just glittery and for show, it's going to be easily overthrown. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode. That leaves us about 21 more chapters to do, and we will do that in the next episode. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.